Well, well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Today we're joined again by Kevin Rusnick, the senior historian at the Air Force Research Laboratory. He's here to separate space fact from space fiction and tell us how the Air Force helped us get on the moon. In three, two, one. Kevin, welcome. It's good to be back. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. I think you now hold the record for uh, most, like we've had you the most of the podcast now. <laughs> well, two isn't much of a record, but it's, um, I'm proud of that anyway. <laughs> Still said it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we get to SNL level, you know, he'll we'll, be like our Steve Martin. There you go. <laughs> you can look Alex forward Baldwin. to it. Eventually I'll be hosting it, right? <laughs> yeah, we'll flip it on us. <laughs> yeah. So, Kevin, we're um, closing in on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing which happened on July 20th, 1969. A lot of what I know about the, the moon landing came from you know high school history classes or the movies. And I don't know if that makes you cringe as a historian. What's your take on learning history through movies? Well, the, to look at it from a positive perspective, anything that encourages people to learn some history is a good thing, something that sparks your curiosity is great as far as I'm concerned. If that's all you're doing though, is the only history you're getting is from what you see on TV or in a movie, well then, you know, it gets a little bit cringe-worthy as a historian because movie makers, even ones with the best of intentions, you know, people who are trying to make a historically accurate movie without making a documentary, they have to cut corners, they have to combine characters, they have to compress events in order to tell a multi-year story with hundreds or thousands of characters in two hours in, in a way that's accessible to people. Yeah. So you realize that as a historian, these things happen. And so you can make a judgment call on whether they should have done this or done that or what they show. But as long as the history that is presented is fairly accurate or gets to the truth of the matter without necessarily being factually precise and everything, you, you have to appreciate that. And so. I think with Apollo, at least recently anyway, the, the movies have been have done a fairly fairly good job of that. And you know, when, I, when I saw the, this question from you guys last, last night, it, it made me look up uh, what are all the movies that have been shown about Apollo. And, and surprisingly, given the significance of it, there haven't really been that many, or at least ones that are that popular. And I'm looking at just uh, fiction, uh, fictional ones, or ones that um, aren't meant as documentaries, but are these kind of uh, dramatic takes on on the Apollo program. And of course, the most significant ones in recent years, have been, first was Apollo 13, that kind of revived interest in the Apollo program. Jesus, probably been uh, uh, almost 20 years now, I guess, since, yeah. that, since that came out. And that movie then, like, or even touching more recently with First Man, have you seen, do a lot of people after they watch these films, like reach out to you to say, hey, Kevin, how close are these to the real story? Or do you more reach yeah. out to other people <laughs> saying, hey guys, come close, let me tell you. Well, that's where social media comes in, because when uh, First Man being a, a great example, obviously there was no Twitter or Facebook when Apollo 13 came out. So it's the community of space enthusiasts and space historians was kind of walled off from the rest of the world. You might have some bulletin board, you know, electronic bulletin boards, things like that, where you can communicate, uh, you know, some some websites, things things like that 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 weren't uh, weren't all that widespread. But now, of course, you've got all the buildup from uh, leading up to First Man since the book came out years ago, and then the various iterations of trying to get this movie made. You know, the, the spaceflight history community has been very interested in this and followed every detail, every casting decision, every 
image that popped up online. You know, it's, it's been been uh, uh, examined under a microscope. And so, you know, after a while, it kind of gets fatiguing. But then once the movie comes out, of course, there's a huge influx of interest from people that aren't just the, the real enthusiasts, but from other people as well. And then, yeah, that's when you get questions um, that are in the general category of how realistic is this or you know what was that that they showed or you know what did they what did they screw up honestly the the enthusiasts are the ones that tend to pick all the you know pick out all the details that are incorrect and you know some of that you kind of want to roll your eyes at like well the color of this dial was wrong or you know uh, he turned left instead of right stuff like this that in the bigger historical sense doesn't really have any significance and you know you pre appreciate that enthusiasm because you want them to get all those details right and if you talk to the guys that are making these movies the producers the prop masters whatever they they really work hard they use as much evidence as they can photographs and things to make stuff as realistic as possible but ultimately they do have time and budgetary constraints and you know they're trying to make a movie yeah. you know sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, tell the story right. in 90 minutes or 120 yeah, depending exactly and so, you know, it's something like First Man where they, they really try to adhere to the story, but, you know, in a historically accurate way, uh, again, as I said before, I, I really applaud those guys. That, that movie, though, is, had some really mixed reactions, though, because they, they try to take a unique perspective on it. They try to get into that, the psychological drama, as it were, of Neil Armstrong to kind of get inside his head yeah. and tell the story of this Apollo 11 mission, the first moon landing, that we all know more or less. And you know, how do you tell that in a unique and interesting way to engage a modern audience? If you just go from start to finish, hey, you know, they trained for a mission, they flew the mission, they landed on the moon, they planned on the flag, they came back and had a ticker tape parade. Well, you know, that that's kind of boring from yeah. a movie watching. It almost feels more like a documentary at that point, or yeah. maybe even just a featured story. So. Right. Yeah, there wasn't enough drama because like, yeah. there's a lot of stuff in his head and in his personal life, right. probably. Yeah. yeah, I mean, looking at Apollo 13, like you mentioned, that was plenty of drama in that movie. Yeah, so, I mean, right. That's, uh, that's what made it fun. Yeah, because it had it had this this moment that made this dramatic turn in, in the mission. If, if Apollo, if the oxygen tank had never exploded on Apollo 13, they would have landed on the moon, collected rocks and come home. Yeah. Nobody would have ever made a movie about it. The name Jim Lovell would just be another of the, in that case, it would have been 14 astronauts that landed on the moon instead of 12. And you know, that that would have been that. But yeah. because there was this dramatic moment that literally made for made for TV, as it were, uh, that that mission became became famous. So. Yeah, they got Tom Hanks. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it worked out. Right. Uh, kind of going to maybe not quite the drama side, but more of an interesting t uh, side that people don't know. Um, with uh, the talk you've been doing more recently, kind of traveling about talking on um, Apollo and its legacy, uh, you've touched on the Air Force's impact on the program, and many people may not know how much they've done for it. So could you kind of explain like what relationship um, the Air Force and NASA had and kind of what uh, helped make the Apollo 11 mission happen? Uh, Apollo being the kind of the pinnacle of, of human spaceflight at the time, built on this tremendous technological and organizational base that had been set through the Gemini program, the Mercury program, and then going back to the Air Force and other parts of the military. It wouldn't have been possible if the military hadn't done all of these other things uh, related to spaceflight and even before that to aviation. If you want to think of spaceflight as kind of the next step beyond flying higher and faster, right? And so who's pioneering that? Well, of course, there's the Navy too, but we work for the Air Force Research Laboratory, so I'll talk about the Air Force some. 
like it, like any history, you can take it back as far as you want. You can go back to McCook Field or whatever, but it's the the Air Force's interest in flying higher and faster in order to survive, in order to get a mission accomplished. So if you want to um, have your aircraft fly over enemy air defenses, well, you go faster. You fly higher than the enemy can shoot, can fly their airplanes or shoot you down with you know ground-based guns or missiles, whatever it might be. And the faster you go, the you can outrace people. And so the Air Force, particularly after World War II, once the jet engine is, is developed, we get into this realm of what we think of as aerospace. We're getting into not just tens of thousands of feet, but maybe 80, 90, 100,000 feet for aircraft. So we're getting just kind of on the edge, edge of space. So what kind of technologies are involved there? And so the 1950s and early 1960s, you see this kind of watershed change in terms of how we're designing aircraft. You get things like swept wings, the jet engine, as I, as I mentioned. You have special alloys for building the surfaces of, of aircraft, because aluminum is going to melt when you go Mach 3, because the, the, air, the friction of the air moving around your airplane heats up the skin. So we get into high temperature research uh, for, for metals. We get into composite materials, ceramics, these, these kinds of novel uh, materials that enable that NASA's later able to leverage. You look at different kinds of propulsion. I mentioned jet engines. Of course, Apollo's not using a jet engine, but it uses a rocket. The Air Force didn't invent rockets. You, you've got people in Germany and Russia, and of course, Robert Goddard here in the United States, who becomes kind of the father of American rocketry. But we adopt it pretty early on. And here at Wright Field, we're looking at small rocket engines as early as the mid-1930s. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and in fact, I mean, Robert Goddard had been working since uh, really around World War One, and the guys in McCook Field were aware of the rocketry research that he was doing. And we even sent somebody uh, a few years later out to check out what he was doing. And there's a famous line that I like to quote. I, th I think I put it in their book that uh, after looking at um, Goddard's research, the guy came back, a young Lieutenant Sessoms, who later becomes a general in the Air Force, concluded that uh, Dr. Goddard's rockets uh, appear to have a little military value. So, <laughs> which in retrospect seems funny, but at the yeah. time, it, um, it of course, he, he was right because it was a very experimental kind of novel technology. But as that technology matures, we look at what we can do with this. So not only looking at like a rock propelled weapon, what you think of as an aerial rocket that you, know, you use to attack a ground target or maybe to shoot down another airplane in a small missile kind of sense, but as a uh, propulsion device for an airplane. And the, that's really our first application here for the Air Force is what happens if we strap some of these small rockets onto the side of aircraft for what they call jet-assisted takeoff. Yeah, and that was, you said, that testing was more uh, taking place during World War II, or is that when they kind of really yeah. said, we could really use this right. and push so, it? Yeah, and that's where you, you see this, this first application. And the United States, of course, is lagging far behind Germany, who, you know, the V-2 rocket by Werner von Braun and yeah. his rocket team, that's the, of course, the, uh, the epitome of rocket development at that time. And we're, we're just using these small rockets, again, for aerial weapons or for, you know, helping bombers take off with heavier loads in a shorter distance. But that, that work's being done here. We had here at Wright Field. 
which is crazy now because we're like five miles from a downtown, like very well, urban area. And <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I mean, they, they still were at that time. I mean, it was, uh, uh, the test stands were actually um, not that far from, from where we're sitting right now. I mean, they were, they were testing, we had a rocket testing complex over there and they just uh, got rid of the last buildings uh, maybe, maybe 15 years ago or so. Oh, wow. But, it was, but you, you're exactly right. You, you've got the, the point after World War II, once we, we have all this captured German technology, particularly the V2s, we quickly realized that the test stands we have here are entirely inadequate for the future of rocketry. We need something bigger. We need a safer place to test these things because not only is it noisy, but if it blows up, you know, bad things happen. You've got all these other buildings around. Even if we're on an enclosed base, you've got all these other laboratory buildings and, and so forth. So that's when we look at a new place to test and how we end up at, out at Edwards and we uh, move our rocket testing facility out to what they call the rock or the rocket lab. It has a whole bunch of names, but that's where we still do our rocket testing today, our Edwards facility, the, uh, the RQ West, as they call it, the Aerospace Systems Directorate. Uh, Cal the, California, yeah, more California, desert landscape, yeah. a lot more space, right. less populated. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to imagine just the sound you'd hear, because even hearing some flights nearby day, and you can still hear some aircraft, right. but hearing rockets testing, yeah, right, <laughs> I it's, could only imagine. Yeah, it's, of course, it's a tre <laughs> tremendous amount of noise. So once we move the testing facilities out of there, we're able to build a complex where any of the rocket contractors uh, can test their, their large rocket engines there under... Uh, with safety and security because it's a it's a closed facility so you don't have to worry about you know the danger to the population but it's also a place where you don't have to worry about uh, espionage or something like that and you know those facilities have grown tremendously over the years and we'll talk about that in a minute uh, particularly because of the Apollo program but to uh, to get to the, to get back to the link to the Apollo program, we're developing these rockets. The Navy's developing some, we're developing some. We're looking mainly at solid rockets early on, but um, liquid rocketry becomes another emphasis of ours. And uh, one of the guys we think of as the father of solid rockets, that is ones that have a, uh, a propellant that, if you kind of look at it, is maybe like something like clay or toothpaste almost. It's, it's a it's a mixture of fuel and oxidizer uh, all together, so that way you just set it on fire and it burns, right? Which, this is great because you can store it essentially forever for years and, and you can launch it right away, so it's perfect for a weapon. Liquid rockets can have a lot more a lot more power, a lot more thrust, if you will, but you got to fill them up and you have to launch them essentially right away, but it's a technology that because of the Germans mainly, we become uh, more familiar with early on. And so you look at our first uh, first missiles that we use for uh, what we call IRBMs, intermediate range ballistic missiles, and later ICBMs, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, the ones that can go all the way across the ocean. Those are all based on this liquid rocket technology. We're using a fuel, mostly kerosene, um, we call RP-1, uh, rocket propellant one, and um, liquid oxygen, you mix those together, you burn it, and you know, boom, there goes your rocket, right? Yeah. So the Air Force is developing these for, for rockets that can go longer and longer ranges, hundreds of miles and eventually thousands of miles. We're developing those to power aircraft. You see one, for instance, that uh, powers the X-1, the research airplane that takes Chuck Yeager past the, past the sound barrier. So we're looking at the, all these different applications for rockets. Well, our rocket lab was 
headquartered here, even after we moved the testing facility out to Edwards, all of the research and development activity was still going on here at Wright Field. It was part of what was called the power plant laboratory, and then later on they called it the propulsion laboratory. But until 1959, all of the science and technology, those guys were still here. We'd go out to Edwards to do the testing, but but that research w was was going on in this location. And was there any contained testing here then, like a much smaller scale, or um, yeah, we continue to do uh, some smaller scale ones for like aircraft uh, okay. rockets and things. But uh, basically, all the and anything of any size really went out to Edwards. Uh, I think they first. They ran, ran their first test in 1952, as I recall, out okay. there. Uh, and then from it just got bigger and bigger, and we built bigger and bigger test stands to accommodate for it. So it's this, this sponsorship of rocket research and this, the S&T we did to support rocket development and to uh, build up the rocket industry that NASA was able, able to leverage when it was formed in 1958 to put a man in space. Yeah, so I'm sure at that point they had no doubt in their mind, like, we need these rockets, we just need all this to right. come together to yeah. get the right material to space. Right. And of course, they had the NASA was formed out of several different agencies. The kind of core of it was the old NACA, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which, as uh, the name implies, they were mainly focused on aeronautical research and a few other things. Their facilities in Langley, they had an engine research up, at, up in Cleveland. And place out in California, but then they were also um, given the Werner von Braun Group, the, uh, the the Redstone Arsenal, the the rocket researchers that had come over from Germany, uh, that were in Huntsville, Alabama. They were so they they became the NASA's propulsion experts. So they were the ones that started the uh, what we think of as the Saturn family of, of rockets, the one that got us to the moon. But interestingly, and this is the this is the critical Air Force connection. If you think of the Saturn V, that's of course the the giant rocket that put men on the moon, right? This 363 foot tall uh, multi-stage rocket that goes up there. If you look, if you guys have ever seen one, there's uh, a couple of them still around in museums. Uh, the the one I've seen uh, the most was is parked out front at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. I mean, it's you can't really fathom the size of this thing until you stand up by it. But the first stage has these five massive engines that are taller than any of us. The engine bells, you know, where the, the fire comes out, the business end of it, right? I mean, they're wider around than like the, this, this table. I mean, it's, it's huge. But that rocket, it's called the, that rocket engine, the, the, the five of these is called the F-1. It was built by a company called Rocketdyne. Well, what does this have to do with the Air Force? And the Air Force actually started that engine. It's, we were looking uh, in the mid-1950s at where could we take rocket technology? We were, the first ICBMs were on the drawing board. We were looking at things like the Atlas missile. But each engine, I think the state of the art at the time, uh, was around, I think, 300,000 pounds of thrust. I think the highest one actually in production was about half that, about 150,000 pounds of thrust. So 300,000, that sounds like a lot. And it, and it was, but again, we're talking drawing board sort of things. Well, guys here, and the Rocketdyne guys, uh, remember specifically the propulsion researchers here asked them, well, how big do we think we can go? What's the maximum we can take kind of current technology and scale it up? Because scaling up an engine isn't just as easy as, okay, well, we need twice as much thrust, so we'll just make everything twice as big, right? Yeah. You know, engineering doesn't work that way. So we asked that question as well, how big can we make this? So we could get together with Rocketdyne to study this. They decide, well, okay, we're looking at about 300,000 pounds. Uh, let's try a million pounds, okay? Or, Just jump for a million? Yeah, okay, <laughs> a, million, a million sounds good. We, we can't imagine right now what we're going to do with a million 
pounds of thrust on a, on a single rocket, but you know, you never know. We're looking at, hey, each rocket's gotten this, this much more powerful, so eventually we'll figure out something for it. You build it and they, they will come kind of mentality, yeah. right? So we think, okay, a million, this is great. Well, what about a million and a half? Okay, well, sure, let's, let's go study that. So we pay Rocketdyne to start, start designing this. They, they take their existing rocket technology and they think, okay, well, how can we simplify this and increase the size and thrust at the same time? And so they start what's, um, what we know as the F1 engine program. Well, when NASA gets stood up to put man in space and eventually go to the moon, they, take, they end up taking over that program. So the Air Force gets out of it and NASA takes it over and that's what becomes the first stage of the Saturn V rocket. It, in fact, develops 1.5 million pounds of thrust per engine. So you stick five of these on the first stage, so you end up with a first stage rocket that's seven and a half million pounds of thrust. I mean, this is an insane amount, but that's what you need to put a guy on the moon in the most kind of efficient manner possible. And just to kind of set it for people, you mentioned yeah. how large these are. Do you know the actual, like the full length of these uh, rockets? Uh, the dimensions I don't know offhand, I'm sorry, uh, but th they're big. <laughs> yeah, the important part is they're huge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so you're kind of making that connection now with the Air Force and NASA's program, um, but what, after the um, Apollo program started, how much did the Air Force work with uh, NASA during that time? Or was this more like you mentioned technology we passed on and consulted with? So the most direct connection and the most active connection, I should say, during the 1960s, during the NASA's manned space flight era, or kind of the, the golden era, if you want to think of it, was, was what, through what we, uh, what we think of as aerospace medicine. Jumping back to the Wright Field era, you have Harry Armstrong comes here to Wright Field and really founds this discipline of aeromedical research. They're the guys that look at, hey, how can we help people survive in this kind of higher and faster environment, survive at high altitudes. And uh, because he, the lab he founds here, which we'll call the Aeromed Lab or the Aeromedical Research Lab, it changes names, but um, we think of it as the Aeromed Lab in general. So I'll use that term, even though it doesn't really apply for the full period we're talking about, but for simplicity's sake. So they're the guys that look at the first development of, of high altitude pressure suits in the Air Force. So if we're flying at altitudes where there's not enough oxygen and pressure to survive, uh, or for a person to survive, um, well, let's wrap them in a suit to do that. So this, that research really kicks off during World War II, and it really grows from there. Even after the war, we're looking at various types of pressure suits, both in an experimental sense and in a very practical sense, because we're flying, now we're flying bombers at again, say maybe 50,000 feet, where if they lose cabin pressure, then the person's not going to live, right? So you need, a, you need a pressure suit as an emergency device. So say you lose cabin pressure, then this pressure suit will inflate, or some of them, what they call mechanical counter pressure suits, will actually squeeze your skin to provide uh, with the, the mechanical pressure against there to keep your blood, the air in your blood from, from boiling out, causing the bends, which if you're a scuba diver, you know about that kind of thing. Sounds like a terrible thing to be the person to help test. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I've got stories about that too. But so they, we, we come up with these these pressure suits uh, to to help our pilots with that, and we we test them in in altitude chambers here. We do all this development. We build up the contractor base that NASA then leverages to build its spacesuits. I mean, you think of 
all kinds of things as spacesuits, but honestly, there aren't that many true spacesuits. Everything is what you think of as, most of the what you think of are, are these actual pressure suits. They're not really intended for doing a spacewalk or walking on the moon or something like that. But the technologies, the basic technologies are very much the same. You have some kind of uh, bladder, to use the term, uh, that contains pressure. So usually, or basically, some variant of a rubber bag, and then some layer on top of that to keep it from stretching out of uh, out of shape. If you think about a balloon when you have it, well, a balloon, it may look like a uh, kind of like a sphere or, a, you know, a sausage or something. And then once you inflate it, what happens, once you start putting air into it, what happens? It stretches out. Same thing would happen to a pressure suit if it doesn't have a, a restraint layer on the outside of it to keep it in shape. So a lot of these are meant for more training then for a lot of the astronauts, or you said they just use this to, for the stepping stone? Right now we're talking about for Air Force pilots flying airplanes. Okay. Okay. So what we're, we're developing this technology, this know-how to do that. And so we're the contractors that are building suits for us. Once NASA come, comes along, they're like, okay, well, Mercury program, we're going to put one guy in space. Okay, he's going to be in a pressurized cabin, but what happens if they if it springs a leak when he gets in space. We don't want to kill an astronaut just because you know there was a hole or a micrometeorite or something pu punches a hole in there. So he needs something like these Air Force guys are using. He needs a pressure suit that can inflate and keep him alive long enough to get back to Earth. So they look at the existing state of the art. And in fact, this is an activity that was done right here, uh, literally a couple hundred yards from where we're sitting right now. They, they ask the Air Force to evaluate the existing pressure suits to see which one would be the best for uh, use in the Mercury program. Because as I mentioned, the Navy was doing this as well. So there was a Navy suit, and then there were a couple of Air Force suits. So we did all these mobility tests. There's pictures of guys, you know, they're putting their arms like a clock at different angles to see how they can stretch and reach and operate different controls with this pressurized. Because like a balloon, once something's inflated, it becomes more rigid. So it's not, it's not very easy to bend when you're in an inflated pressure suit. So uh, mobility was really a, a key factor here, both inflated and how comfortable it is when it's not inflated. So we do this evaluation for, for NASA, and we, we recommend, hey, this Air Force suit that we've been using, that's the one you should use, it's great. NASA, uh, the, their crew systems division head, he's the guy that's responsible for suits, says, well, thanks, but I'm from the Navy, I like the Navy suit better, so we'll use that one. But <laughs> anyway, they... Uh, uh, but we, we did that evaluation here and... Also they, probably some testing. Oh yeah, yeah, qu yeah, quite a bit of testing in fact. We would test these in the, uh, um, the vacuum chambers. As I said, we do all this mobility testing and so forth. Um, and then what ended up happening because of the, uh, the allure of the space program, putting men in space, you see a lot of the guys here, the engineers that worked here, they think, hey, cool, I want to go work on the manned space program. So a lot of our technical experts left here and went to uh, what became the Johnson Space Center. Then it was the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. So there was that knowledge transfer by the physical transfer of people going there. And so you see the, the same experts that were developing pressure suits here go work for NASA to develop the first pressure suits and the first spacesuits for them. And same thing happens on the Gemini program. That one uses a basically a modified Air Force suit for that, the one that kind of lost out from Mercury. But the Ed White, the guys that uh, you know, did the first American spacewalk, you know, those suits are based on Air Force technology. Once they get to the Apollo program, they use this tremendous knowledge base they have to essentially clean sheet design a, a suit, but they're using these principles developed first by the Air Force and the Navy and then on the Mercury and Gemini, particularly thinking about joints, like how do you, how do you 
move your arm or your neck or whatever it is and in a spacesuit to, to design the, um, the Apollo lunar suits. And so if we hadn't done that work though, NASA wouldn't have had that, that knowledge to leverage and it would have taken them much, much longer to get it done. So. That makes sense, yeah. With how much, it's a lot of, people don't really consider how much goes into not only getting to the moon, but even building the spacesuit or getting the right. rocket set or like you mentioned, transferring knowledge with people. Right. Um, so that just goes to show even just a few major parts of how much the Air Force has helped influence the program. Mm -hmm. um, but tackling more into Apollo 11 then um, with the crew itself, can you kind of go into maybe some of the training they may have gone through or kind of what it meant to be an astronaut at that time to get ready for the moon? Anything you can imagine that uh, you would need to do in space, they did to the, the nth degree from geological training, traveling to different uh, places around the world to uh, learn the basics of being a geologist, looking at, at rocks. You go out to the desert and try to figure out how to identify what might be significant. I mean, if you think about that, these guys are going to the moon, a place where nobody's ever been. I mean, we've sent probes, we've taken pictures. We understand more or less what uh, is going to be there or what we expect to be there. But when you have a guy actually walking around and he's surrounded by rocks, well, okay, he can just grab a bunch of a bunch of random rocks and some dirt, throw it in a bag and bring it back. And that's you know something that's never been done before, great. But you want to make sure that these guys are able to do this to the best of their ability, as well as a professionally trained geologist would. You want, to, you want them to be able to identify what are the most significant rocks around them, what's something unusual. Because you know, if, if you grab 10 bags worth of dirt and rocks that are all the same, well, you're going to learn a lot about those particular samples, but you want to get a variety. You want to really get a sense of uh, the history of the moon, the geology that's there, and you can't do that unless you've been train, trained to do that. So they would spend hours and hours doing basic geological training. Of course, some of the astronauts took it more seriously than others, and where you see this training really pay off is in the later missions where they actually stay on the lunar surface for uh, more than a few hours, where yeah. they stay for days, and they have the lunar rover to drive around to different areas and collect different rocks, and you see, see that pay off. But when you're talking Apollo 11, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, you know, they're only there for a couple of hours, so they're, they literally are doing, hey, let's grab some samples, you know, and, and get them back, and anything beyond that is gravy, right? And this, where did they go to actually train them? Like, you said uh, they uh, traveled around. Some, some of it was in Arizona, Hawaii, uh, I think uh, later ones went to, I think it was Iceland, uh, these places where cool. you think so where really volcanic, because they're expecting the moon to have a lot of volcanic activity. Yeah. So that's where you, you would send the guys to areas where you, you would see volcanic environments so they could identify that kind of rock. And you know, of course, the, the moon did have some of that, but it wasn't all of that, a lot of the, craters and things were made from impacts. So it's you, you get that kind of, those rock formations based on, you know, having been hit by uh, by meteors, things like that, so. And did they, as the crew, I mean, they've spoken a lot about their mission well after the fact, mm -hmm. um, now that we're celebrating the 50th anniversary. Um, have they mentioned maybe like, something indispensable they did or saying a part of training they say is absolutely the most important or something that really stuck out to them? Oh, um, you know, I, I'm not sure I've heard them discuss and, and kind of in retrospect the, the key uh, bits of training, but having talked to a lot of the uh, engineers and uh, flight controllers, the, these people, I think the, from, from, in my opinion, the most valuable training they did was uh, in the, the Mission Control Center. Okay. So thinking about um, the activities they have to do while they're going to the moon, 
launch and re-entry as, as they're going. So where they're running through all the different procedures, running through malfunctions and things, they, all the interaction they're having to do with the ground. And so they, this, this kind of simulation, I mean, they did probably thousands of hours. You'd have the guy sitting in the mission control center, you'd have the guy sitting in the, the simulator for the command module or the lunar module, and they would run through the procedures for landing. And then you'd have a simulation group, these simulation supervisors or sim soups, throwing different errors at them. Okay, there's a problem, you know, boom, something went wrong, you know, okay, how do we fix that? They would learn all these procedures. And so that way when something went wrong and things did go wrong, they would know how to respond to that right away and they could, could solve these problems. Yeah, no or, panic just right. right after it. Yeah, and Apollo 11's the, the, the great uh, example. As they're landing, they get this computer alarm, this, uh, this 1201 alarm where you know the computer's basically getting overloaded because of a, a radar issue and it pops up and, oh my gosh, this is the first landing on the moon. If they hadn't trained for this, this exact scenario, they might have panicked and aboard didn't, didn't land on the moon. Well, because they knew what to expect, the, the, the flight controllers, they recognize what's going on, they know what's happening. They're able to tell the guys, hey, it's all good, you know, just we'll bypass that alarm for now. You know, as long as these other things don't happen, you're all well and good. Yeah, because that could be alarming. Up. You're right. Yeah. They're like, ah, oh, we'll be fine. Let's yeah. just push that aside. Right. So the, I think that, that kind of training is something that, that NASA had been doing since the, the Mercury program, really, and then continues to do for the, the space shuttle program now, because you don't want to be uh, in space and not know, you know what to do. And of course, Apollo 13, another great example, yeah. where their training does pay off, but that's something you could never have anticipated. Blowing up an oxygen tank would have been unthinkable for a, a simulation for the most part, just oh, because it causes so many things to go wrong. But because they had trained in all these other areas, they could, leverage that training to do all enough workarounds that they can they could contain the situation and come up with with solutions to get those guys back alive. Yeah, and touching on what you mentioned too, a lot of these errors they have to be in constant communication with mission control. Right. Um, how powerful were these communication devices they were using? Because I mean, going from the moon to Earth at that time sounded extraordinary and still <laughs> does, honestly. Yeah, I mean, we had we had a network of of state of communication stations around the Earth. Uh, Australia is one of the the great examples, where essentially the Earth always had one of these antennas pointed out in space and. It's actually easier to communicate. Uh, you, you need fewer of these stations to communicate with people going to the moon than it is circling around the Earth because they're always, when you think about the line of sight, um, you know they're always in a different position. So you would have to have so many different stations to follow their orbital track. But as you're going out to the moon, I mean, as you're looking at the moon, it seems more or less stationary. But you know, it's it's going across the night sky. But as the Earth is rotating, you've got a much wider field of view toward the moon. So you need fewer of these stations. And so, yeah, you need a relatively big and powerful antenna to get to get the signals there and back. But it's actually not as as bad as you might might think for that kind of thing. But yeah, we we're able to be essentially in constant contact with those guys as as they went. And um, something that we were talking about uh, before this, we were kind of touching on with this being the 50th anniversary, uh, kind of what Apollo 11 means to not only the United States but the world and its legacy. Right. So um, during your talk, is there anything you touch on talking about how it's impacted our culture and kind of how it's really painted our worldview today? There, there's the classic saying, right, that, um, well, if we can go to the moon, why can't we do X, Y, and Z? You know, it's, it's still seen as perhaps the, the greatest technological achievement, at, you know, certainly of the 20th century, if not, you know, ever. It's this thing that hundreds of years from now, when we've for, long forgotten about, 
you know, who was president a particular year, World War One and Two. It's another, you know, go into the history books as, you know, just a, another war like all these other ones that you guys may, vaguely remember something about from history class. But we're always going to remember that we step foot on a different body other than Earth for the first time. This guy, Neil Armstrong, maybe they won't remember his name offhand, but the fact that we did this back then is something that's going to essentially live live forever for hundreds or thousands of years as long as we have history. And so that is such a significant event by itself. I mean, just the fact that we've done that. And I mean, the, the symbolism there is, hey, we, we managed to do this achievement in an era that was fraught with turmoil. You're thinking about all the social change going on in the 1960s, the Vietnam War, civil rights, all, all of these things. And we were able to do this, this tremendous technological feat that kind of was symbolic of almost an earlier era where, hey, we can leverage technology to do almost anything we want. And then after Apollo ended in 1972, we had kind of come back down to earth by that point. It's like, well, we don't have unlimited amounts of money to throw at these great technology things or doing these tremendous feats may not get us where we want to go, you know, as a society. Sure, they're inspirational, but hey, we have other priorities. We need to do these other things. But it still stands as as a tremendous achievement, not only for the nation, but, you know, for for the world. And we tried to give it that symbolism symbolism as at the time if you look at uh, the the plaque left on on the lunar lander on apollo 11 it says here men from the planet earth you know it doesn't say here men from the united states they were trying to represent everybody absolutely and, and that's a, you know and one of these other great great legacies is you were able to see because of the space program the moon the the moon landing program you're able to look back at the earth and see the earth as a whole you can see this this blue sphere kind of hanging in the middle of a whole lot of black nothingness and this is what the the apollo astronauts at least the more philosophically inclined ones talk about when you're looking at the the moon from, or looking at the earth on the way to the moon what do you see you don't see borders you don't see the wars going on you just see everybody together on on one planet and so that really gave them a, a perspective that hey we, we are all in this together and there's nothing else out there as far as as we can see so we really need to take care of the planet that we're on and you know kind of take care of each other so that's a truly inspirational message yeah. <laughs> that's powerful yeah, yeah that's one thing i've definitely seen a lot of people talking about that blue marble hanging in space mm -hmm. kind of how like beautiful, fragile, but powerful it looks. Right. So, and that's, I can't even imagine going up in space and seeing that for the first time. That'd <laughs> right. be amazing. And something we kind of want to throw in here at the end to kind of uh, have a nice tie is, is there any fun facts about the Apollo 11 mission that many people may not know that you like telling them or during your talk you brought up? You know, fun facts. Well, it uh, it wasn't filmed in a uh, studio by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, <laughs> oh, is, that, is that is that a fun uh, fun fact? Yeah, we're finally exposed this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The uh, no, it's as as a historian, you try not to get too wrapped up in fun facts, but it's always the. I usually uh, more interested in kind of debunking these these sort of myths that get wrapped up around it. You know, like. Hey, we spent um, you know however many millions of dollars to develop a space pen when the Russians used a pencil. And actually, I'm holding one of these space pens as we speak, right? No, you know the Fisher Company developed this pen on their own and sold it to NASA because it would work in space. But you know we use grease pencils. The Soviets use you know pens as well, so it wasn't you know one thing or the other. You know, so those kinds of things you know aren't aren't really true. You know. Uh, 
<laughs> I don't know. The whole the whole mission was fun to me. I yeah, mean, it was yeah. it was really cool stuff. But I, I, one thing I did want to point out, you know, uh, with, as we're talking fifty years uh, now, Buzz Aldrin. Uh, if you guys know his his full name, Edwin E. Aldrin Jr. Well, Edwin E. Aldrin Sr. was an Air Force officer or an Army Air Corps guy. Uh, where was he 50 years before uh, his son landed on the moon? Right here. He was uh, in the first class of, uh, of what's now the Air Force Institute of Technology at really? Cook Field. Wow. Yeah. That's, a lot of people don't know that. I sure did. <laughs> right. So if you look at <laughs> kind crazy. of the, the, first, the first graduating class, uh, 1919, uh, the AFIT, uh, it was the uh, the Air Service Engineering School? I think was the name of it at the time. Set up by uh, by our buddy uh, uh, Thurman Bain, Edwin Aldrin Sr. was was in that uh, that particular group. So you can go see his picture, and then 50 years later, his son's landing on the moon. And of course, uh, uh, Buzz was also a, a graduate of AFIT, as were many of the Apollo astronauts. So well, that's great. So see that's the kind legacy. Of a cool tie in. Yeah. yeah, 100 years and 50, right there. Him and his father. Right. That's really cool. Well, I don't know if you had any uh, final questions for Kevin. I think I think think that's it, Kevin. Thank you for your time again. You're yeah. welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Yeah, it's always fun, and I mean there are lots of other Air Force things to tie in. So I don't want to give all the other guys, like our materials researchers or electronics guys or anything like that, the short shrift. But uh, in the time we have, it's impossible to talk about everything. So yeah, we can talk about <laughs> space food and yeah, so, yeah, of course, yeah. on uh, spacesuits and other times. So. Right. Lots cool. and lots of that stuff. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And to keep up to date with future and past podcasts and to check us out on social media, make sure to see us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And make sure to stay curious. Logging off.